You're listening to More Than a Song, episode 180. Welcome to this episode of More Than a Song. My name is Michelle Nizat, and this is the podcast dedicated to helping you discover the truth of Scripture hidden in today's popular Christian music. My goal is to teach you to connect portions of God's Word with the songs you're singing along with on the radio, to help you meditate on truths that will transform your way of thinking and ultimately your life. Have you ever heard the phrase, if you feel far away from God, ask yourself who moved? Do you believe that there are times or places where God will leave you alone? Perhaps in your heart of hearts, you believe scripture when it says, I will never leave you, but emotionally he seems distant or even absent from your current struggle. And this week's song reminds us that God is a God of the hills and the valleys, the highs and the lows of our lives, and we are not alone. Hills and Valleys by Tarn Wells will lead us to the Old Testament this week. But before we head over to First Kings, let's listen. On the mountains I will bow my life to the one who set me there. In the valley I will lift my eyes to the one who sees me there. When I'm standing on the mountain I didn't get there on my own. When I'm walking through the valley God says something in 1 Kings 20 that drew me to that area of scripture this week, inspired by our song. In verse 28, it says, The man of God came up and told the king of Israel, This is what the Lord says. Because the Arameans think the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands, and you will know that I am the Lord. There it is. God is a God of the hills and the valleys. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 15, we see the king of Judah at the time. He makes a treaty with the king of Aram, also kind of known as Syria or Assyria in this time in this region. Now, the reason that the king of Judah made the treaty is because Aram was allied with Israel and Judah was at war with Israel and wanted Aram to withdraw their support from Israel. And it worked, sort of. I mean, if you listen to episode number 176, we used Brandon Heath's song, Whole Heart. You, re- you might remember the rest of the story. Uh, this treaty with Ben-Hadad was not sanctioned by the Lord. In fact, Asa, which, who was the king of, of Judah at the time, he went from wholehearted devotion to the Lord to a complete aversion to seeking the Lord. So five chapters later, we see Ben-Hadad attacking Israel again. Now, the thing is, is that Ben-Hadad is like a common king name of the time in the region, sort of like Pharaoh was to Egypt. So just because it says Ben-Hadad, it may not be the same guy but uh, that had made a treaty with Judah all those years ago, but potentially an heir maybe, and still very much a king from that same country. So still has the same history um, leading up to this attack. So chapter 20 of First King, First Kings features this Ben-Hadad attacking Israel and its current king, King Ahab. I know it gets to be kind of confusing. And so sometimes if you slow down, I've even jotted down timelines and drawn arrows and just tried to get my mind wrapped around the different characters in the story. 
partly so that I can put them in historical context. Um, so you can do that as well. But this, in, so chapter 20 starts out again with Ben-Hadad attacking Israel. But I want to know and I want to understand who King Ahab is. So I have to go back to chapter 16 where I read that Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of of the Sidonians and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. And Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. So when I read this, I think to myself, why in the world would God protect Israel if their king was so wicked? And this is what I found. I found as I was reading along in context, the chapters leading up to chapter 20, that Elijah was the prophet to King Ahab. And if you've never studied Elijah, you will discover that he was a pretty special prophet with a pretty special relationship with the Lord. And in addition to Elijah being the prophet during that time, the king's palace administrator was a devout believer. In fact, in chapter 18, we read Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. And and it says in parentheses, Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. So I'm thinking King Ahab is wicked and God wouldn't do anything for him. But when you see these faithful servants calling on his name, and later you see there's even an additional remnant calling devoted to God, you can kind of see God's plan forming. In chapter 19, you see God speaking directly to Elijah. And in this exchange, he's giving Elijah instructions that will begin to reveal the next phase of history. So in verse 14, Elijah says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. All right, so that's a new guy, not Ben-Hadad, a new guy over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. So we got a new king over. God's plans are new kings all around, okay? And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Maloah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So here you see the remnant. Elijah was feeling quite alone, which is another topic for another podcast. But God was putting into place the next leaders and revealing that there really was a remnant of believers who remained true to him, even though Elijah felt completely alone. But here's how our feature story plays out. So that leads up into uh, chapter 20. So Ben-Hadad mustered up an army and 32 other kings in the region to all come against King Ahab and Israel. And the writing was on the wall. So when Ben-Hadad asked King Ahab for his, he asked him for his silver, his gold, his wives, and his children, King Ahab agrees. (laughs) But then Ben-Hadad comes back and says, not only that, but I'm going to make you prove your agreement and I'm going to come and take what I want. 
And to that request, Ahab was like, oh, no. So it was like he was willing to take a subordinate position in word. But when it came to actually giving up his possessions, that was crossing the line. So at this point, Ahab seems to ask for counsel. He gathers together the elders of the community and they rally behind him and they encourage him not to agree to Ben-Hadad's demands. So Ben-Hadad threatens to demolish Samaria, the capital city. And I love Ahab's response here. He says, one who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off. (laughs) In other words, don't count your chickens till they're hatched, buddy. Uh, Don't brag about the, don't brag until you've won the battle. So this, of course, infuriates Ben-Hadad and he orders his army to get ready for battle. Now, there's a little detail that's mentioned here that becomes an important part of the story later. But when Ben-Hadad gets the message from Ahab, he and his buddies, those 32 other kings that he rallied, they're drinking in their tents. Hmm. Okay, that'll come up again soon. But the music swells, you know, I often encourage you guys to listen to epic music when you're reading epic stories. This would be a good time to try that. And enters the prophet of the Lord, right? In verse 13, it says, Meanwhile, a prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel, and announced, This is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? I will give it into your hand today, and then you will know that I am the Lord. But who will do this? asked Ahab. The prophet replied, this is what the Lord says. The junior officers under the provincial commanders will do it. And who will start the battle? Ahab asks. And the prophet answers, you will. So Ahab's got his marching orders, got a little battle plan from the Lord. And I guess in this situation, he feels like, you know, either I'm destroyed on one side or I try God's way. So Ahab summons the 232 junior officers under the provincial commanders. He assembles the rest of the Israelites, 7,000 in all, and they set out at noon while Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings allied with him were in their tents getting drunk. And the junior officers under the provincial commanders went out first. And that's what verse 17 says. Don't you love it? God uses the least to defeat the greatest, all so that he gets the glory. This happens over and over and over in scripture, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So long story short, but fascinating. I hope you'll read it for yourself. Uh, Long story short, Israel defeats Ben-Hadad and the vast army of Aram with like a bunch of newbies. Like these are the rookies. These guys are not the uh, the junior officers. <laughs> these are these are the lower uh, rung, uh, just recent graduates. You know what I'm saying? So the prophet comes back and the Lord warns Ahab to strengthen his position because Ben-Hadad will attack again in the spring. And meanwhile, poor Ben-Hadad, he's got quite the team of advisors. Here's their advice. Meanwhile, the officials of the king of Aram advised him, their gods are gods of the hills. That's why they were too strong for us. But if we fight them on the plains, surely we will be stronger than they. (laughs) Oh, that must be it. You know, God's a God of the mountains, but not of the valleys. Israel can be defeated in the valley. So they attacked again in the spring, and scripture says that the Arameans covered the countryside while the Israelites camped opposite of them like two small flocks of goats. (laughs) And then comes our focused verse. So the man of God comes up and told the king of Israel, this is what the Lord says. Because the Arameans think the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands, and you will know that I am the Lord. If you keep reading, you find that once again, Israel wins. God gave them the victory because God is indeed a God of the mountains and the valleys. Now, recently I read a book by Matthew Harmon entitled Asking the Right Questions. 
a practical guide to understand and apply the Bible. And I figured this was right up my alley since asking questions is one of the Bible interaction tool exercises that I use frequently on this podcast. So I call my Bible interaction tool exercises bites because they help us take a bite out of scripture. And indeed, using Mr. Harmon's questions will help us do that today. So that is our bite this week. In addition to reading in context, of course, ask questions. All right, let's use Mr. Harmon's questions, shall we? He divides his questions into two groups, understanding the Bible and applying the Bible, and both are so important. In understanding the Bible, we ask, what do we learn about God? What do we learn about people? What do we learn about relating to God? And what do we learn about relating to people? Now, I'm going to give you my answers to these questions today, but this story is so rich that if you take the time to go through this exercise yourself, you will definitely be able to come up with more. So we learn through this story and God's indignation, by the way, that he is not merely a God of one circumstance, but sovereign over all all circumstances. He's God of the hills and the valleys. He wants to be known as the Lord, the self-sufficient and eternal one. And he's willing to give specific instructions on how to win battles. So that is my first answer. What do we learn about God? Well, what do we learn about people? Well, there's lots of different people in here that we could we could look at. But Ahab, Ahab's willing to surrender everything to a wicked king, but not to Yahweh. He will, ref- he will refuse to surrender to God, but he'll give everything else away to his enemies. That is so strange, but that is we do that so many times in our lives as well. What do we learn about relating to God? Well, he's a deliverer. He proves it over and over again in scripture, and we see it here. He delivered the vast army of Ben-Hadad into King Ahab's hands because he wanted Ahab to know that he is the Lord. He wanted everyone to know that he is the Lord. And what do we learn about relating to others? Well, good counsel matters. The people of Israel rallied around Ahab to stand up against Ben-Hadad, and it served him well. The advisors on the other side to Ben-Hadad suggested that God was a God of the mountains, but not of the valleys. And that poor advice turned out pretty devastatingly to Ben-Hadad. So, Those questions fall into the category of understanding the Bible. We pulled out some key um, kind of facts about what we can see in the Bible. And in the category of applying the Bible, we then kind of turn a little bit more personal. We ask, what does God want me to think or understand? What does God want me to believe? What does God want me to desire? And what does God want me to do? This is very personal. And this these types of answers will change depending on the season. I hope you're the kind of person who's willing to write in their Bible and maybe even jot down dates um, and you can go back and see the journey. But uh, so when I ask, what does God want me to think or understand? The, the result is, for my answer is God is a God of the mountains and the valleys. Don't fall into the trap that Ben Hadad's advisors fell into. Don't believe the lie that God can provide victory in one place, but not in another. I wish we could unpack that. I've got a few few more things to say on today's podcast, but if you just stopped there and really thought about that, in what areas of your life, life have you designated God is God of this, but not of this? Right, God's a God of these high places, but not these low places. God is a God of these relationships, but not of these relationships. God is a God of these choices, but not of these choices. We could really, really think about that and and unpack that. Uh, And you may choose to do that and just stop and journal there for the week. 
So that's something that God might want us to think or understand. But what's something that God might want us to believe? Well, the terrain of our life does not define the faithfulness of God. First of all, we long for those mountaintop experiences. It's thrilling to be seemingly be above it all. You know, I just got back from a wonderful trip to Alaska. You will notice that all of my memory verse resources have my Alaska pictures in them. It was a great trip. But do you know what I discovered about mountaintops? They are majestic, but the air is thin and they are often barren and there are distinct dangers at the top like loose shale or avalanches of snow. And what about the valleys? Well, we equate valleys with low places, as in like dark and scary and bad, but they're not always what we think they're going to be. Sometimes they are dark, but they're definitely lower than the mountaintops, but they're often lush and green and growing. What about deserts? So another terrain, not that our song talks about that or our verse talks about that, but we often talk about the desert seasons in our lives, those barren, solitary places that seem to be so dead. And in scripture, a desert is ironically also where God richly grants his presence and provision for those seeking him. Our limitless Lord shows himself strong in the limiting, most difficult seasons of life. So you see, the terrain of our life does not define the faithfulness of God. After all, he is the God of the hills and the valleys. So what does God want me to desire? Well, I believe in my, my current situation in life, and he keeps drawing me back to this. He wants me to desire him. He wants me to consult him, to seek his will. He wants me to have an unreasonable desire for him. And so what does that lead me to do? What does he want me to do with that? Well, he wants me to know that he is the Lord. He holds ultimate authority over my life. And, and how is knowing doing, right? So the question is, what does God want me to do? Well, I believe that when I know that he is the Lord, then I will trust him. And trusting him is definitely doing something. And for me, that's what God wants me to do. He keeps calling me back to that, to that word, this idea of trust. So it could be completely different for you. And as you answer these questions and take them personally and really unpack that and just see these themes running through these epic stories in the Bible, I just pray that God will speak to you quite personally. So what's next? Well, read 2 Kings 20. You know, it wouldn't hurt to read it in context. I would jump back as far as chapter 15 and then read into it. Uh, read it several times. You know, the repetition often helps us um, identify those details of the story. Once you kind of get a good grasp of it, try telling the story to a friend because that helps uh, really solidify those details. Really let it soak in. It, I, I mentioned it before, but it really is quite an epic story. And then ask the questions that we asked on today's episode. I'm going to go ahead and post all of those questions. You don't have to take notes. I take them for you. I put them in what's called the show notes. And you'll find this week's show notes at michellekneesat.com forward slash 180. And while you're in God's word this week, let me know how you're doing. Email me, michelle at michellekneesat. Hop on Twitter at michellekneesat or Facebook. Michelle L. Nizat is my public page. And 
we can talk about what you're learning. Now, before I tell you what song will be featured next week, I want to thank the premier Christian streaming uh, music streaming service, theoverflow.com, for pointing their subscribers to this podcast, but most importantly, pointing them to God's Word through music. And when you subscribe to their trial, you will receive a 10-day series of devotions that I wrote based on some of my most popular podcast episodes. So I encourage you to check them out at theoverflow.com. I also want to thank my newest subscribers to my website, Dina from Georgia, Pamela from Alabama, and Kathy from Louisiana. I just want to say welcome. New subscribers to my website will benefit from an email that I send once a week. In that email, you'll get a weekly memory verse resource to display on your smartphone, tablet, desktop, or you can print it out. You get an email recap of the week's episode, and you'll get instant access to any of the resources I create for my episodes. And all of that is just my way of saying thank you for listening. So head over to michellenizat.com to subscribe today. And then don't miss an episode of my podcast. You can subscribe directly in iTunes. And while you're there, please leave me a written review and a star writing. This encourages me, but it also helps me stay visible to new listeners. As always, if you take the time to review my podcast, I will take the time to personally thank you right here on the podcast. Well, that's it for this episode of More Than a Song. Next week, I will be using The Gospel by Ryan Stevenson to jump into scripture. If you liked this episode, would you mind sharing it with others? I've made it really easy. With just one click, you can share via Facebook, Twitter, or email. Just head over to michellekneesat.com forward slash 180. While you're there, I'd love to hear from you. Click on comment to join the conversation. Until next time, take time to meditate on God's word and consider his ways.